0: With Daniel Minnick. Hello, this is Daniel Minnick, and welcome to Truth Espresso. If you have not listened to the previous episode where I had a guest on, Joe from Walk with God, basically to talk about the Christian understanding of politics and our response to the upcoming election. And to really understand where our faith was, I would recommend that you listen to that episode. Now, as I record this episode, it is still before the election, but as it is released, it will be after the election. So as I'm recording this, I cannot speak to who won the election, but I still remain a committed Christian and I still remain someone who trusts in God regardless of the results. In this episode, we're going to continue a series talking about income inequality. And I know that income inequality has ballooned as an issue in recent politics and has been discussed in this election. And unfortunately, there's a lot of misunderstanding about it. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the cause of it. There's a lot of misunderstanding about the nature of it. There's a lot of misunderstanding about whether it's bad or good as long as honesty is taking place. And so, in this episode, we're going to continue talking about income inequality. And in this episode, we're going to look at several claims about income inequality and then answer those claims with facts. And so, first of all, just what is income inequality? Well, income inequality is exactly what those words mean. There are people who make a big deal out of the fact that there are some people who earn a lot more than others in the marketplace. And the cries about this have nothing to do with whether the activity itself is done freely and honestly and mutually, The assumptions are somehow that some people who are very rich cannot possibly be rich in any honest way, that somehow there is some kind of systemic violence, as we looked at in episode 69, that there is some kind of manipulation, there is some kind of oppression that makes some people richer, far richer than others. And, of course, I am open to the possibility that, of course, I, in fact, I know that there are wealthy people who game the system, as it were. And especially the problem is when CEOs of companies and, of course, politicians get together and try to rig the laws. And they try to get tax favors. Now, of course, I am a very strong critic of taxation. So, I'm not one who says that taxes need to be fair and therefore we need to tax the rich more. I'm one who would say taxes need to be fair and therefore get rid of them. (laughs) But let's look at some common claims about income inequality and let's give some answers to those claims. Let's raise some facts and let's have some fun discussing this issue of income inequality. And so, claim number one, this is kind of something that would often go on a bumper sticker. The rich are getting richer and the poor are staying poor or The poor are getting poor. Now that sounds like it almost goes without saying, don't you think? It just sounds like it would make a lot of sense, because if someone is rich, then they're able to maintain their wealth, and if they're rich by inhonest activity, then they have the inertia to keep themselves getting rich, and if the rich are getting richer, and they're doing so by exploiting people, then somehow they are underhandedly robbing the poor, kind of like prince john and robin hood but of course that was a matter of taxation so of course it's not a direct comparison but if somehow the rich people just keep on increasing their riches so they can swim in them somehow like scrooge mcduck and go under water or under coins and spit them out and wade around in them while poor people are struggling to survive this would seem like something that would cause a lot. Of outrage, but of course, this is a big misunderstanding of how wealthy people, if we're talking about in the pure sense of people who honestly get wealthy by mutual exchanges and offering things that people want to buy, this is not how wealthy people behave with their wealth. So, the claim the rich are getting richer and the poor are staying poor. Now, let's answer with this fact in the United States. Income and earning levels for all groups of people increased. And where do I get that information? I'm going to look at an article from the U.S. Census Bureau, census.gov. And this is a report called Income and Poverty in the United States, 2019. And so according to the U.S. Census Bureau, which I would think that the U.S. Census Bureau are not a bunch of capitalist pigs. <laughs> According to this report, income and earning levels for all groups of people increased, whether families or non-families, whether male or female gender, and for all ethnicities and in all regions. And that's how they broke up their report. I will put this report, a link to it in the show notes. So, according to the U.S. Census Bureau report of 2019, poverty across all ethnicities and all ages decreased. In fact, from 2014 to 2019, the poverty rate went from 14.8% to 10.5%. That is an average of a whopping 0.86% of the population coming out of poverty per year. Now, 0.86% itself doesn't sound like a lot, but think, every year on average, almost 1% of the entire population has come out of poverty. That is an amazing figure when given under the backdrop of all of history. So, the rich are indeed getting richer, but the poor are also, on average, getting richer. Oh, but income inequality is such a horrible thing, you say, because some people are getting richer faster than others, right? Well, given the U.S. Census Bureau's report, we can't just look at a graph from one year and a graph from the other year that divides incomes into quintiles, the bottom 20%, the top 20%, and say that this is what's happening to the lower and this is what's happening to the higher, even if the bottom 20% have on average, regardless of how many people fall into that group, If the lowest 20% of income earners, of course, dividing it up into quintiles is kind of its own issue, but if someone can trace a change from a graph several decades ago with a graph now and show that relative to inflation, relative to whatever, the lowest quintile has remained stagnant, that still doesn't prove the point because remember, There are different people in those quintiles across several decades, and so the complaint about income inequality doesn't take into account income mobility. Now, what is income mobility? Income mobility is how likely someone is going to be able to move from one quintile, one section of income earnings on average, and move to another section. In in other words, a rags-to-riches story, someone who's in the poor moving up more toward the middle class or going to the upper middle class. And so, income mobility factors in how people can go from one bracket to another. And usually, people move from a lower bracket up into an upper bracket. Now, there are some people in the upper brackets who make mistakes in business and go bankrupt, and they go to a lower bracket. But most of the trend is poor people getting richer. The complaint about income inequality doesn't take into account that all households have actually gained over the time period. The report from the U.S. Census Bureau over those five years from 2014 to 2019 show that all households have gained tremendously over those five years. But the complaint is just another argument that income inequality itself is the problem. So, because there is a range between the richest and the poorest, and if that range happens to increase, then we need to be up in arms. But, if poorer people today are much wealthier and have many more things today, and the ability to buy luxury things today, things that improve their lives, than the poor people decades ago... Isn't there something to say about that? It's not as if a lot of these poor people happen to do enough labor economically to mass-produce and invent a smartphone, but because wealthy people have invented and created and been able to raise the capital to invest and to improve and create smartphones, poorer people are now able to take advantage of that increase in overall wealth. And so, income inequality is is not the problem just because rich people on average are getting richer doesn't mean that the poor are worse off because you have to take into account that the economy is not just one pie and you have to figure out how to split it into equitable pieces. If you can increase the size of the pie, even if someone has a smaller fraction of it, that piece can be bigger than a larger portion of a smaller pie. And so, the claim that the rich are getting richer and the poor are staying poor is refuted by the fact that everyone has been, on average, getting better according to the U.S. Census Bureau. Now, claim number two the United States is the worst offender for the problem of income inequality. Now, in response to this claim, fact, the statistics that are often used don't measure various transfers of wealth in the United States from rich people and to poor people. There's an article that was in the Wall Street Journal. It was entitled The Myth of American Inequality. and I will put a link to this article in the show notes. This article by Phil Graham and John F. Early in August 9th, 2018, said, quote, Inexplicably, the Census Bureau excludes Medicare and Medicaid, which redistribute more than $760 billion a year to the bottom 40% of American households, unquote. So, this is when people often complain that the United States has a much worse manifestation of income inequality and that other developed countries, especially European countries, have a lower income inequality and yet they are still wealthy industrialized first world countries. But, much of these charts that show that the United States is so bad in income inequality, according to the Wall Street Journal article, show that the Census Bureau itself, it depends on how the government agencies in the various countries report the data. Because you could be comparing apples to oranges, or you could be comparing figures that are incomplete And the United States Census Bureau does not include the massive Medicare and Medicaid expenditures in their figures for referring to income for these charts. And so, what is more than three quarters of a trillion dollars is not reported, it's not factored into the comparison. Continuing from the Wall Street article, quote, The data also exclude 93 other federal redistribution programs that annually transfer some $520 billion to low-income households. These include the Children's Health Insurance Program, Temporary Assistance for Needy Families, and the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children, States and localities directly fund another $310 billion in redistribution programs, also excluded from the Census Bureau submission. This means current OECD comparisons, that's talking about countries that are included in this list of developed countries, This means that current OECD comparisons omit about $1.6 trillion in annual redistributions to low-income Americans, close to 80% of their total redistribution receipts, So, is the United States the worst offender for income inequality on an international scale when comparing with other countries that are industrialized, that are first-world... No, the fact does not support that because there is a lot of money, $1.6 trillion, that is excluded from these figures. And this $1.6 trillion goes to poor people in the United States. And so, when you factor that amount in that the U.S. Census Bureau does not supply for these income inequality figures, the United States compares reasonably to other countries on the international scale. So, the United States, fact, is not the worst offender for income inequality, if indeed income inequality is a negative thing. Now, claim number three. The poor and middle class are being cheated out of most of the wealth that their labor creates. So, in other words, according to those who freak out about income inequality, their claim is that people are getting rich off the backs of the valuable labor that poor people contribute because they don't pay them equitably. And since profits emerge by wealthier people who own the enterprises, that these profits represent exploited labor from the poor, and that employees that make less of an income in the contracted amounts that they get paid, they really should be paid more because these profits represent some of their labor going toward the richer people the higher-ups, the CEOs, and so on. So, now, fact. No ideologue is able to show the absolute standard or have the economic knowledge to know and to calculate what the worth of labor actually is apart from the price system. This assumes that almost all work contracts are unjust when, in fact, they are mutual. This also assumes that there is some science that can predict future profits more accurately than even the most trained statisticians that most companies employ. Because to figure out how to pay people these alleged just wages, businesses would have to be able to know their future profits ahead of time so that they can pay their salaried labor force ahead of time. Well, you might say that once the profit totals are available at the end of the year, the firm could split those proceeds relatively evenly across the salaried workforce. Now, here's the thing. How does a business grow if it can't allocate profits toward greater capital investment? New equipment, updated equipment, and even new hires are possible uses for profits. There is uncertainty involved and profits have to be allowed to be invested back in the business. And investing back in the business does not just mean invested back into the paychecks as bonuses or whatever of the current workforce. This would exclude the ability of any kind of enterprise to be able to hire new people or invest in newer equipment to produce things more efficiently. Well, you might say, sure, I understand that. But instead of so much of the profits now going into the personal pockets of the CEOs, why can't some of that go into the pockets of the workers? Well, some of it does. And if a business is more profitable, they are more likely to increase or pay out various bonuses. And people do get promotions based on the productivity that they offer if the company sees that this person is essentially being underpaid for their work because they're very committed they're very productive then obviously they don't want to lose that employee to a competitor and so they offer promotions they offer raises that's how the free market works if almost all salaried workforce that's not in the upper echelons of business management and CEOs are all drastically underpaid then you'd think that there'd be some honest firm that would offer to pay workers much more than they're being paid on the competitive marketplace because they'd see the value in that labor and they could undercut their competitors by offering much more. But no, the free market Market itself balances work and reward, and various salaries range around an equilibrium point for the way that work is valued in the marketplace. There is no exploitation going on here. You have to be quite the conspiracy theorist to believe that most enterprises somehow are in league with all the others to suppress the wages and somehow ideologues can figure out how to calculate the just wages? How does that work? Now, those who demand that most workers must get a significantly higher wage than they are earning right now Let's look at the example of Walmart, and let's do a little math, shall we? The math simply does not support economic growth through forced income inequality. So, let's look at Walmart. Walmart's revenue in 2019 was $514.4 billion, according to an article from geekwire.com. and I will put the link to this article in the show notes. So, Walmart's revenue last year was $514.4 billion. So, let's think about that amount. That is over half of a trillion dollars in one year. So, Walmart is indeed one of the largest companies in the world. So, now, what was Walmart's net profit? Keep in mind that revenue doesn't just go into the pockets of executives. Walmart's total net profit for 2019 was only $6.67 billion, according to MacroTrends.net. So, let's do a little bit of math there. $514.4 billion of revenue, that's whatever's coming in, and what they have left over for profit is only $6.6 billion. That is a profit margin of about 1.3% of revenue. Now, this $6.67 billion in 2019 was actually much lower than the net profit in 2013 at $17 billion but 17 billion is still a tiny fraction of 514.4 billion what these figures go to show is just how incredibly volatile Walmart's profitability is Walmart international is ginormous it is a humongous network of stores But with such volatile profitability, they have to be incredibly efficient, incredibly careful with what they do with their money or they can see themselves in the red pretty quickly. Let's consider that $17 billion from 2013. Now, admittedly, $17 billion is a lot of money. But what could Walmart do with that? They could try to invest that carefully into marketing and research and development, trend analysis and distribution to try to grow for the next volatile year. Or let's consider, what about paying all their workers more? What about giving them all significant raises? Let's think of all the fight for 15 that want to raise the minimum wage to $15. Wouldn't that be social justice? Well, let's factor in that Walmart has over 2.2 million employees worldwide, according to Walmart's website at corporate.walmart.com. I'll put a link to this in the show notes. What if we split that $17 billion that they made in 2013 in net income to all 2.2 million employees? they would each get about $7,700 more per year. Now, that sounds just right, except that that amounts to about $3.71 more per hour for each employee, no matter what he or she does. Now, of course, who wouldn't want a raise of $3.71 an hour? Everyone would love a raise in pay. But simply giving everyone a raise of less than $4 an hour for Walmart would eat up all of their entire net income for the year. And keep in mind also that we're talking about the best year of the decade, which is over twice as much as the worst year. For all those fight for 15 advocates, or even those who believe that the minimum wage should be a whopping $20 federally across the board, you can see from the numbers that Walmart simply could not afford that. Not even close. And by afford that, I don't mean to do that while operating profitably. I mean, to do that, they wouldn't be able to pull it off without facing potential bankruptcy. So, if Walmart were forced to pay minimally $15 an hour, they would have to slash their workforce. That would destroy hundreds of thousands of jobs. What about those poor people who would be let go just to force Walmart to pay the remaining workforce a little more money per hour? And, of course, a diminished workforce would mean less productivity for Walmart, which would mean they would have to raise prices. But fewer people would have jobs to buy the products at those prices. And that would definitely be almost a downward spiral in the economy. Intervening in the free market in this way is not good for Walmart, for Walmart's customers, or for most workers at Walmart or other places I would propose. Now, I would love to talk more about the problems with the minimum wage and raising it, but that would be for another episode. So, consider these problems are what coercive income equality proposals would do to Walmart. It would destroy Walmart's ability to be profitable or stay afloat. How many social justice warriors fighting for income equality even do any math with disaggregated figures like these? Of course, you might say that we can't just equalize the profits. Daniel, you're not taking into account the high salaries of the higher-ups at Walmart. Okay, let's start with Doug McMillan, CEO of Walmart. His total salary for 2019 was $23.618 million. Oh my goodness, why should anyone need that kind of salary? Well, his base salary was about $1.4 million, and the rest is based on how well Walmart does. So, if Doug McMillan wants that extra salary above the $1.4 million base holding the CEO position, he needs to make sure Walmart is profitable for the year. One would think that being in charge of making sure that over a half trillion dollars in revenue continues to be profitable with such razor-thin and volatile profit margins should command a decent salary, wouldn't you think? now for fun let's do the math let's see what would happen if we take Doug McMillan's salary which includes what he gets for performance and the base and divide that equally among the 2.2 million employees so 23.618 million divided by 2.2 million. Let's see, that would give every employee a whopping generous $10.73 extra for the year. So basically, if you take Doug McMillan's salary for the year and divide it among all the employees equally, they all get one dinner, a cheap dinner, that is. So, for an extra $10.73 per year total, would you like to be CEO of Walmart and try to make sure that Walmart continues to operate successfully? Probably you not. You probably would not want that kind of stress. You'd probably want to work in the clothing department and hang up clothes or something like that. Okay, claim number four. Growth that fuels income inequality leaves the poor behind. So, the engine for growth that makes rich richer, by definition, leaves poor people behind. That is one of the claims of income inequality. Fact. Economic advancement naturally does produce more income inequality, and this is not necessarily a bad thing. (gasps) Daniel, you mean you actually admit that income inequality is not necessarily a bad thing? Yes. Let's look, for example, at an article talking about Bangladesh. Now, Bangladesh is not one of the top richest countries. It's considered a poor country. But there's an article from SalamGateway.com entitled Growth Fuels Income Inequality in Bangladesh. Hmm, I wonder how that works. According to salamgateway.com, Bangladesh is ranked 113th among 158 governments, according to a report by Oxfam and Development Finance International, DFI. Okay, so relatively speaking, Bangladesh is one of the poor nations of the world. But what is our fearless writer of this article expecting out of Bangladesh? Quote, the commitment to reducing inequality index CRII noted Bangladesh spends little on health, just five point o four per cent of total government budget. Unquote. Well, what do you expect? I mean, from a poor country, do you expect them to have some kind of universal health care or some advanced health care system like the first world countries have? Do you expect three people living on an island, living hand-to-mouth, to to provide some form of universal health care or some health care safety net that would make... Someone from the United States or Canada proud. Continuing with the article, quote, Bangladesh has achieved remarkable growth, 6.0% on average in the past decade, which, however, witnessed rising income inequality. Unquote. It kind of follows, doesn't it? If an economy grows, that means that some people are finding ways to dig themselves out of poverty. Through hard work and innovation, some people are going from rags to riches. That's progress, my friends. And we shouldn't punish Bangladesh because, as a poor country, they're starting to see growth, but say, ah, you need to make sure that you bridge that income inequality gap. Now, let's look at an article from Quartz by Manuel Hines. Entitled Inequality Can Be a Good Thing. So, Mr. Hines is going to go out on a limb and go against the grain and against the propaganda and against all the freaking out of politics about income inequality and actually challenge us to think that income inequality is not all bad. So, according to Mr. Hines, quote, inequality is the mechanism through which the market generates and spreads innovation, which in turn generates opportunities for millions of individuals. Every innovation has initially generated inequality in incomes as their inventors exploit it commercially, unquote. You think... And although exploit it commercially would seem like a scary choice of words, it would just mean offering something new for sale on the market and being successful because of willing buyers. Now, for example, just think of Steve Jobs, who climbed himself up to billionaire status by innovating in the technology experience market. Yes, he didn't invent computing or even invent the smartphone, but he did figure out how to package things in such a way and build a brand that many people love. Is it unjust that Steve Jobs became a billionaire? Well, how did he do that, by and large? By selling things that people want. He didn't point a gun to people's heads and force them to buy an iPhone. The fact that people were willing to hand over hundreds of dollars for an iPhone means that they are willfully rewarding him for giving them something that they consider worth more to them than the money that they give up in exchange. Sure, there are many smartphones that are even much cheaper than an iPhone, but think... Someone could easily blow $500 on two nights at a hotel and some fancy dining, and then it would be gone. But for that same $500, you can get a nifty, shiny piece of technological wizardry that can provide you a gateway to the world. It allows you to talk with people from anywhere in the world. You can see live video in someone's living room and dog from halfway around the world. You can buy products and services from a dizzying selection of sources. You can start a business and make money all from this little portable device that you call a phone. Many have simply created a viral video for YouTube from their phone and have improved their lives forever virtually for free. You can play some amazing games. And there are hundreds of thousands of applications that you can download, install, and run in a matter of seconds, many of them, for free. I mean, it's almost too painful to conceive of what this little thing is capable of doing. And you can use it for years, potentially, as long as it lasts until something goes wrong. You can have all this wonder in the palm of your hand just by working and saving for a few weeks or a month or so. You can even get the thing for free in some cases if you bundle it with a monthly phone plan. And so, people like Steve Jobs and the current CEO of Apple and other companies, they sell things and people buy them. Why? Because when you buy something and when you sell something, you make an exchange based on unequal values. What do I mean by that? It means that the one selling the thing believes that the money that they get in exchange for them is worth more to them than the product or service that they're exchanging it for. And the buyer sees this product or service and says, I want this more than I want this amount of money that you're charging for it. And so, all things being equal and simple, it's win-win. It's a mutual exchange. No guns or fireworks or bombs or whatever involved. Now, to conclude our thoughts on income inequality, let's compare someone who wins the lottery with someone who would actually have the same amount of wealth due to free market enterprise. Let's observe that those who handle money that they earn treat it differently than those who handle money that's easy and unearned. Consider that virtually everyone who wins the lottery goes bankrupt within three to five years. Why is that? How can someone possibly blow through sometimes upwards of $200 million if they win the big pot in a matter of a few years? Why is that? Well, no one who wins the lottery takes that easy, lucky money to start a business where they carefully understand the risks and the rewards and that they must turn a profit. And if he or she does start a business, most of the times it's not a very wise investment. What are the first things that lottery money usually goes toward? A new house, a new sports car, a yacht, a luxury vacation. Hardly will a lottery winner carefully plan to spend some of that money on capital equipment with careful estimates to produce goods or services. Hardly will a lottery winner think about how to make that money grow, and hardly will a lottery winner think of putting that money in the bank and using the interest as modest supplemental income. Most lottery winners quit their jobs the very first day they find out they win it, and that can be a problem. Most likely, the lottery winners live like the prodigal son that Jesus talked about in the parable. After ceaselessly spending away the funds till they dry up, the lottery winner will end up at best as he or she was before the lottery, but most likely worse. What's the point that I'm making with lottery? Income equality advocates are not saying that everyone needs to be given lottery winnings. They're just simply saying that justice would demand that some of these poor people should be paid more for their labor than they are getting paid. And that somehow it's a systemic problem of being underpaid for the jobs that they do because if there's profitability that represents some of the value of the labor that they provide going into the pockets of wealthier people. But, since it's all mutually exchange, and because of competition, because of free market forces, you can't force things on people in the market. This is all mutual, and mutual is good. The price system, as it is, supply and demand dictates what's equitable. If you try to interfere with that, you only create problems. You either suppress supply, or you suppress demand, or you increase demand relative to supply, and so on. You could reward some people while hurting many others when you try to interfere in the market. Now, let's leave us with some verses from Scripture, some passages from Scripture that help us to understand how do we handle income inequality and how do we handle the proposals that somehow we have to intervene in the way things are and pass laws and forcefully redistribute income to level the playing field, allegedly. According to Exodus 20, verse 15, one of the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. So, what would be considered property, based on mutual exchange, God recognizes private property and ownership. And so, anyone who believes that you have to take from someone by force to give to someone else, that is stealing according to the word of God, according to the law of God. And the tenth and final commandment is that thou shalt not covet... Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's goods or wife, or any of the thing that is thy neighbor's. So God recognizes that people legitimately own things. Any kind of policy or proposal intended to force a redistribution, apart from the way people make and earn things mutually on the marketplace due to supply and demand and contracts, is theft and it's covetousness. If God commands people not to covet, it is not justice if they get what they want by force. And now, let's look at Jeremiah chapter 22, verses 13 through 17. Woe unto him that buildeth his house by unrighteousness, and his chambers by wrong, that useth his neighbor's service without wages, and giveth him not for his work. That doesn't just mean poor, that also means rich. If you steal, you are not giving someone the wages due to the service or the work. And verse 17, but thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness and for to shed innocent blood and for oppression and for violence to do it. And keep in mind, Christian, if you think that it's the job of the government to force redistribution of wealth, how is that done if anyone is unwilling? It is by ultimately the threat of violence. And so if violence is involved to satisfy covetousness, which means that you believe you have the right to something or you desire something that belongs, that is the property that God recognizes belongs to someone else, then it's wrong. So I hope you've enjoyed this discussion of income inequality. In the next episode, we're going to look at income inequality from a different angle because we're going to look at different economic factors. Is income all there is to everything? What about different jobs? What about other factors? Is income really just the only legitimate measure of someone's wealth or happiness? So, stay tuned.